Hey everyone, I'm Kari. Hello everyone, I am Bree. And this is CSI Talk. Today is our anniversary. <laughs> the day that we're quoting this, it's our second anniversary. It's knock up on both of us. I knew it was coming soon. I just happened to get a Facebook memory about it. Yeah. Two years. Two years. And this is our 102nd episode. Happy birthday to us. Happy birthday to us. Happy birthday to CSI Talk. Happy birthday to us. Oh, I would have never imagined that. This will come so far. I mean, to be honest with you guys, this, I, I've had this idea. I'm not going to try and be like a theory idea. Not like there was an idea to bring together a group of remarkable people <laughs> to fight the battles we never could. No, I've had this idea to start a podcast on TSI after the after we had known for a while that CSI was going to come back and I was like, well, it would be nice if we had a podcast about CSI. And there was one that hasn't been updated for a while. So I was like, let me do it. So I asked around on Twitter and Bree and then Elisa answered, but then Elisa dropped on us in the middle of the way, but we stayed But what's happening for her for everything she's doing? Yeah, and me and Brie, we stayed together, and here we are, 102 episodes later. As you can see, the two, the two Gen Zers will all and dance together. 102 episodes, and 102 episodes, actually. Uh, we got our counts wrong many times, but we count them again. I mean, Brie count them again, and it's 102 wrote, episodes. Yeah, I went to walk through all of them, wrote down every single episode. Yeah, guys, we are on Audible. If you guys listen to audiobooks or podcasts on Audible, we are on Audible. And also on Amazon Podcasts and also on wherever you get your podcasts, we're there. Yep. And with free, we are not. And you would like us to add our podcast to the platform that you listen. Uh, please let us know. That, and well, then also, we're gonna add I think once on Pandora. Yeah, we're also on Pandora as well. And I think we're also on Radio Public. We're on Radio Public, on iHeart, on iHeartRadio. But with, we are not somewhere that you guys want us to add our podcast to. We will. Just let us know. But, okay, guys. So, today, it's a Lady Heather that featured because last week was a Lady Heather episode. And today is also a Lady Heather episode. But before we get into today's episode, we just want to let you all know that this is a safe space for you. Okay. We always say this every single episode for a while now. And I just want to make sure that this is a safe space. So whenever you want to come here just to shut up the world around you, we got you, okay? We are your friendly neighborhood CSI fans. You can tell that your girl has been watching a lot of Spider Man plays. So today's episode is one of the longest episodes. It is the longest episode. It was actually 
according to the commentary that I watched today, it was because CBS wanted them to do a episode that could go with Survivor that was a 90-minute episode of Survivor. Yeah, so it is a 90-minute episode. And, I mean, it's, it was long for a television standard because usually it's a 40, 40, 45-minute episode. I, I didn't even know that it was a 90-minute episode until Bree told me because the episode goes by so fast that we don't even know. Like, it's fast-paced. The name of the episode is Lady Hatter's Box. One of the writers is Anthony Dyker. I mean, it is a great episode. It's the 16th episode of season 3 in... The official synopsis is, Brisson and Brass pay another visit to Lady Heather when one of her employees is found dead in a local club. Meanwhile, Catherine is faced with a crisis. As per usual, Sarah is not on this case until it becomes inevitable that they both had to meet. There is a phone party. I mean, look, I have nothing against phone parties, but the thing is, aren't you guys afraid to fall? To break a bone? The poppin' is more coordinated than we are, Kari. Yeah, I know. Aren't you guys afraid? Oh, when the episode starts and there is that party, all the time I was thinking, somebody's gonna fall and somebody's gonna break a bone. And it so happens somebody's gonna, it's gonna die. Nobody's gonna break a bone, but somebody's gonna die. A woman screams because she found a dead body under the phone. So, racism is, is at the scene with Ress. And... They find the body of a 21-year-old Trey Buckman, and he has blood all around his head. Grissom realizes there is a puncture wound on his neck, and Brass finds out there is about $3,000 in $100 bills in his wallet. Money was not the motive of his murder. The owner of the club says... I mean, there is no concern for the murder. I mean, <laughs> Jesus, you're not concerned that somebody just died in the place of your work. Not even concerned that the place that you're working might be haunted. Anyway, he is concerned about the fact that he's losing money because his club has to be closed because they found a dead body. And Brass tells him that he has to be provided with a VIP list for the night. Grissom realized there is seminal fluid on the dance floor. And Sarah and Warwick, they recover a lady underwear and shoes from the dance bed. I mean, okay. They realize that there is also the smell of strawberries. And said, and Warwick is like, oh, it's from the phone. Wonder how he knows that. <laughs> yeah. Brad tells the CSIs that Trey was staying in the Sphere Hotel. And back in the hotel room, Warwick finds a long dark hair in the bathroom sink. But Trey has short hair. And Grissom also finds pink lipstick on the champagne glass, which means that Trey had company. Back in the autopsy, my favorite sequence of the episodes, Doc Robbins tells Grissom that the toxic board came back clean. There was no drug, there is no alcohol, nothing. Because from the functional Grissom thought that Trey was on drugs. And Doc says that the wound that they found on his neck was most likely lethal and it could have been caused by something blunt, not sharp. 
there's a difference between something blunt and something sharp. Something blunt means that some force was used to knock the victim down. And that force was enough to bring the victim down. Sharp force is related to uh, uh, weapons such as knives or anything that you can find on the kitchen. There is also a mark that they found on the victim's shoulder and Grissom thinks that it was probably a bug bite or an allergic reaction. Grissom and Warwick, they go over the evidence to see what could have caused the stab wound. And there is a glow stick, a pin, and a cell phone antenna. And they, yeah, cell phones used to have antennas, you know, if you, you know. This show was made in the 2000s. And it was in the time when cell phones used to have antennas. And they all come back negative for blood. But then Grissom sprays a stiletto heel with luminol. And it comes back positive for blood. Braz gets all the women from the VIP list. And Grissom is able to match the show to a phone dancer called Renee. And when she's brought into questioning, Renee... And this the, is played by Elizabeth Berkeley, who was not, is not only known for Safe by the Bell, but also for a movie called Sugars. I mean, it makes sense to me. She's on the show called CSI. <laughs> she doesn't know how her show impaled his neck. She said that she remembers that foam was rising and then her heel was going into something soft. But she thought it was somebody's shoes. Then they look into her background and they realize that she had a relationship with Trey. But she tells Brass that she had a relationship with dozens of guys on the club circuit. On the, on the club circuit. So the evidence is really super sensuous. And then she starts to flirt with Brass. But it is interrupted by Grissom. <laughs> and he literally takes a strip over here. To see if it matches the hair that Warwick found on the bathroom, Trace, the hotel bathroom. And Doc Robbins tells Grissom that the mark they found on the victim's shoulder wasn't made with a needle, but with a man made high pressure subcutaneous injector. It, it is different from a needle. The result came back with insulin. But Trey was not diabetic. Doc Robbins says that the insulin is not a narcotic or a hallucinogenic, which means that insulin will not make you high and is not a drug in that sense. There is no reason at all for the victim to be taking it. So Grissom and Catherine at the crime scene of Corey, they are in the crime scene of Corey Richards. His decomposed body was found in his apartment next to a barbell and... <laughs> Nick has his own classification for it as villains, as in dead upstairs neighbor syndromes, which means that the body fluids uh, came through the floor and became visible to the tenant downstairs. I don't know if that's a thing. If you guys know a CSI in real life, can you please ask if it was a thing and come back to us if this is a thing? They see uh, the marks on the fingernails and they've realized that Koi was a cocaine junkie. His drawers are empty, but Catherine finds a lot of money and a fully stamped password, which means that our victim over here, he is well-traveled. But they think that the victim is a drug dealer. So Catherine actually leaves the scenes because her daughter, you know, Lindsay, 
is calling her because she's in trouble. Uh-huh. He called Tommy. Yeah. Back in the autopsy, Doc Robbins, he finds Doc Robbins has a full day ahead of him. He always has a full day ahead of him. He found a foreign object on Croy's fever during an x-ray. When he takes the object out of the body, Nick realizes that it's the tip of a needle. And Doc Robbins says that the tip of the needle broke off when he hit the bones. And the first victim, Grissom's victim, the credit cards shows that he had booked a room at the Tangiers, which tells Grissom that Trey was staying in two different hotels at the same night. So it doesn't make any sense for him. They go to the Tangiers hotel room and Grissom and Warwick, they find a woman on the bed with champagne glass in her hands. She thinks they are for her entertainment, but then she finds out that they're actually for the police, but they're actually work with for the police. And when they ask her who she is, because the room is registered in Trey's name, she says that her name is Rebecca McCormick and says that she doesn't usually do what she's doing right now. And she said that she got a card from someone on the strip on the strip and said that the and thought the experience would be fun. Okay, the Massey Mathing girl. Nick gets the password for Core's computer and he finds a schedule, let's say woman's name, which means that Croy was not a good guy, and the hotels and the names and parentists. So every name has a one hour schedule. So Nick thinks that it, that with all the apartments and the clothes, Cora wasn't selling drugs. He was selling himself. Okay, he, he was working as a sex worker. Okay. And Nevada's when the Steve states were legal. Yeah. So he tells Grissom that the needle they found was to God. And Grissom points out that that type of needle is used for insulin. So now the cases are together. You know, the cases are connected. The cases are related. And both of the victims were working in the sex industry. They looked at a course employment history and they found Lady Satter's name. So Grissom and Brass, they go to Lady Satter's house and they are told that Corey and Trey, they were both working for her. And she said that they were good workers and highly skilled. And Brass is like, what about Mona Taylor? She was working a year before. I mean, my man Brass didn't like Lady Heather, did, did he? No. He, he never likes to. Lady Hatter's like, oh, are you accusing me of anything? And, and Grissom's like, uh, and no, no, he's just, he's, he's just, you know, making an observation. You know, he's not telling you that you killed her or anything. And then Brad says that he knows that it is forbidden for men to work in her domain. And Brad is like, oh, this is an accusation. She says that both Corey and Trey were independent contractors. They were performing online on her website. She tells them that they were not working on her domain physically. They were working for her on her website. When they can work, they go over the credit card transaction from Lady Heather's website. And both Corey and Trey, they worked in the chat rooms. So... Lady Heather, whatever she was saying was right. And they cross-referenced the clients. All of them were women. 
Nick realizes that the victims died four weeks apart. The victims cried died first a month earlier than Trey. Nick realizes that the victims died with one month apart, which means that Croy died one month before trade and did and realizes that killers don't really stay away from their comfort zone. Warwick narrows down the search area, which what he did was actually a geographic profile either way. They get 16 results from the list that they had from the female clients with the driver's license. And person's like, well, we are looking for our dark-haired woman because of the dark hair they found on Trey's room. And Ward, he starts excluding everyone with white hair. And then he finds someone familiar, Rebecca McCormick. Remember her? The one lady they found, he and Grissom found? She lied to Grissom and Warwick when they first met. So Catherine and Grissom, they go to Rebecca's house and they talk to her and her husband, Stephen. Stephen tells them that he hired Corey to dominate Rebecca, saying that he was hoping that Corey would help ease some of Rebecca's quote-unquote sexual difficulties. The problem, he says, was Rebecca's lack of experience. Yeah, sure, dude. But they met with Corey over the internet first, then in person at Lady Heather's. So Rebecca's re truly she reacts when Trey's name is brought up, but they don't get a response out of Stephen. Then she said that she did meet Trey on the website, but their encounters were only ever online. She also said that she wanted someone with more experience, which was why she was waiting for Trey that night at the Tangiers when they found her. So Catherine asked Rebecca for her hair and DNA for comparison, and Stephen says that Rebecca will provide with anything the CSI needs. And he really doesn't like the fact that his wife was seeing more than one man outside of their marriage. Dude, what are you expecting? Warwick tells everyone that even though he's not completely sure, the hair they found in the bathroom and the tangerine matches Rebecca. So Catherine's like, well, if she lied at the hotel and in her house, she was probably with Trey and not just online. Grissom adds that her husband only knew about Croy and had no idea that she had hired Trey. And yes, I am aware that I am completely ruining the pronunciation of the name Croy. So if this is your name, I'm truly sorry. So they go back to Lady Heather and Grissom tells her uh, about Stephen McCormick and that he is an investor on her website. And she's like, well, that is public record. And she tells Grissom that Stephen came to her for help because of his need for dominance because he married someone who couldn't understand the dominant, like, submissive relationship. Like, Grissom actually understands this dynamic. And Lady Henry is actually surprised that he does. And then... Lady Heather realizes that Grissom is losing his hearing. Yep. And he hasn't told anyone about it. But they sit down for tea and Grissom is told that Lady Heather is a diabetic. Grissom is told that she's a diabetic type 1. She tells Grissom that she doesn't use a needle, but she uses a pressure point syringe. And she offers to show Grissom how it works. But Grissom says that he would like to see it, but he needs a warrant. 
I love how Lady Heather's like, I think I just heard you say no. If he gets the warrant to see. And also, the baby stole Anthony Zyker was kind of not arguing or fighting with Bailey Peterson about if they should show the kiss or not, but Bailey Peterson did not want to show it. And Anthony Zyker did. I don't know what he wanted to do, but I feel like it was Butterfly. Butterfly was after this, right? Yes. Butter- Butterfly? Mm-hmm. No, but- Butterfly Butterfly comes on in season four. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm just throwing it out there, okay? Maybe he was already building this idea. Because as they said on the appellate panel for DSI crime scene investigation on the last episode, Sarah was brought in as a love interest for Grissom. They didn't know when that was going to happen, but she was brought in as a love interest for him. I guess he was, maybe he was trying to make sure that Grissom would stay as faithful to Sarah from the beginning. Yeah. Even though, like, there is this whole thing, I mean, I've said it last week, I mean, Lady Heather is, is Grissom's match as an intellectual match. But we all know that Sarah was his soulmate. It is his soulmate. So I guess what William Peterson was trying to do was to make sure that Grissom was faithful to Sarah from the beginning, even though from the beginning he didn't fully understand what was happening to, like, what was their relationship like. In Brett's office, Brett, he, uh, Grissom tells Rebecca that she lied to them and she didn't only have sex with Trey online. Ward tells her that the hair they found in the hotel matched to her. I mean, and it's similar. And Rebecca says that it doesn't mean that it's conclusive. Warwick also tells her that the DNA they found under the bed sheets is hers. Brass also brings up the fact that her bank records shows withdrawals, which totals $50,000, which is the same amount they found on Corey's apartment. And he also says that Rebecca used to work for a pharmaceutical company that dealt with synthetic insulin and she asked where Laura is she lawyers up so Brass is now questioning Lady Heather and he thinks that Stephen invested in Lady Heather's website and that she killed both of the guys that Rebecca was having a thing with I love that scene she seems to be aware that Grissom is watching her and she already knows that the insulin and who already knows that the insulin, Grissom already knows that the insulin that it was taken from her kid was non-synthetic. The insulin that she takes matches the insulin found on both of the victims because it is quite rare. She tells Brass, but it, it looks like she's telling Grissom that anyone could have walked in and stolen the insulin from her. And then she walks towards the, the mirror and talking to Grissom, even though Brass is thinking that she's talking to him. And she pleads her innocence to both Grissom and Brass. Brass is like, it's all about the evidence. I love that scene, how intense that scene is. You know, how she tells Grissom, not on those using these words, but she kind of tells him, I would never imagine that you do this. I wouldn't do this. All of that. She didn't do it. Back in the lab, and he goes over her, her her medical paraphernalia, and he realizes that one of her insulin bottles has less insulin than the others. But he tells Greg to process them right away. And Catherine interrupts him and tells him that there's another problem. 
Uh, Rebecca has died because she was strangled to death in her house. Uh, her husband is acting really calmly, or just drinking some glass of milk. Stephen, he tells Catherine that, that he was the one that found Rebecca's body. And she is looking at him, but she doesn't find anything that would incriminate him. She says, well, if I found the mice falls dead, I would have touched the body. And Stephen's like, well, I never did. That is weird, because if you found someone dead, you would have touched them. Grissom looks over the body, and he finds some material around her neck wound. But Grissom tells Raz that the material they showed on her wound was nylon thread with fragments of ostrich feather. It would point back to Lady Heather's dominion. So they go back to Lady Heather's, and Grissom realizes that he actually noticed a submissive, quote-unquote, wearing a feather boa the day before when he was drinking tea with Lady Heather. And Lady Heather says that the woman is Chloe Sands. She uses that as a way to control her breathing. Grissom finds the black boots on the floor and he realizes that they have the same sense as Trey's crime scene. Strawberries, you know, do you all remember that when Sarah said, oh, it smells funny, and Warwick said it smells like strawberries. Now they have linked her, Chloe, to the crime scene and the two victims. But Lady Heather says that Chloe quit the day before and Brass now has to find her. Then Grissom tells Lady Heather that he's sorry that he thought that Lady Heather was guilty. And she's like, well, apologies are just words. When it comes to Lady Heather's warrant, we don't have one. Fans love that so much. They sent Paul Gelfoyle a shirt with that saying on it. I, you know what? I think this relationship, I've said it once and I've said it, I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. I think their relationship kind of helped Grissom come to terms with his relationship with Sarah. Greg tells Grissom that the needle that was used on Trey at the phone party had the filials on the syringe plunger, which is the thing that you use to literally plunge the syringe. And the DNA matched Chloe. When she's brought into questioning, Chloe says that she injected insulin on Trey's shoulder at the phone party and said that she did strangle Rebecca for Stephen because Stephen, quote-unquote, belonged to her. In another interrogation room, Stephen tells Grissom that Chloe had trouble controlling her emotions and she let things get too personal. It had nothing to do with the fact that you literally controlled two women into doing the, those things for you, right? And he said that he did see Chloe outside of Lady Heather's dominion. Then Brett says that Stephen got Chloe to kill Trey and Croy because they were having sex with his wife. And then he got Chloe to kill his wife. And then Stephen is like, oh, that never happened. And then he told Brass that Chloe acts on her own. And then Grissom realizes that Chloe killed Trey and Croy to police Stephen. And he thinks that actually it did. It really pleased Stephen. But Stephen tried to get Chloe to stop, but instead she killed Rebecca. Then Grissom tells Stephen that even though he spent a lot of time with Lady Heather, he didn't really understand that the submissive was the one that was in control. And Stephen said, oh, but I told her to stop. Yeah, okay. And then the last scene is Grissom outside of Lady Heather's house. I think she walked in and worked for the apology. I don't know what I think. Well, anyways, so 
what did he Next, say? What the other, the other story, the other case. Yeah, the other case. Eddie dies. Do y'all remember him? <laughs> it's Catherine X. Okay, so on the case we have Catherine, Sarah, and Sam. Oh. Shouldn't even be on the case, which Sarah points out, but Catherine can't get away with murder. Yeah, well, I think she Catherine, did. She, she, I think she did actually. That's Catherine. Well, anyway. So Catherine, I love Catherine. Usually, this is just one of the episodes I'm not a big fan of her because she's not concerned about her daughter, and this she's more concerned about herself. Exactly. Well, Catherine, she is attending Wayne's employee, which is Sleeping Beauty, and every Eddie arrives late. And I'm so glad that Lindsay stepped with theater all throughout high school. Oh, that is really great, actually. There was Lindsay big sins. But Eddie got up and raised his voice at Catherine, which made Lindsay cry. Well, Lindsay ran off the stage, and Catherine and Eddie, they go to comfort Lindsay, but she just wants to go home. But she wants to go home with Eddie. When she was at the crime scene with Nick, Catherine is getting a lot of phone calls from Eddie. But there is a poor reception because it is raining a lot. There's a storm. And on the third call, but she hears Lindsay screaming for help. But she literally leaves Nick all by himself and goes to Lindsay. So Lindsay tells Catherine that on the way to a hospital, the car crashed of a bridge. So Lindsay is trapped inside and the water is rising. Well, Catherine is able to navigate Lindsay through the storm and she found out where the car went off. But this is one of the few things that I actually really love of this episode because Catherine... You know, you can say whatever you want about Catherine, but Catherine literally, you know, she stopped working on the scene. It was pouring rain. And so, out of the car. That, that scene that is in the, with the car overturned, half of it was filmed at the Melrose Place pool. That's a, that's a TV show. And the other was on stage. So she got out of the car, slid down the embankment, swims under, breaks the car window, and freaked Lindsay. Okay, and that stunt was done all by Mog Helgenberger. Oh, that's amazing. She gets Lindsay off the car. So Detective Vega is on the case, and he asks Lindsay what she remembers about the crash. And she tells Vega that a woman with pink hair was driving the car. Eddie wasn't driving because he had a stomachache. The woman was driving him to the hospital. And the car swerves off the road, and the woman got out of the car, left Lindsay all by herself, and Eddie drifts out of the car, but never came back. And Lindsay thinks that Eddie is dead. But Catherine doesn't know if that's the case or not. When the car is pulled up the water, Sarah realizes there is blood on the front of the passenger seat. And Catherine, she finds a vial filled with little liquid against the front window. But when Sarah asks if it could be drugs, and Catherine says that it's most likely the case. Sarah asked for the vial because Catherine is not on the case. And Catherine wants to work the case. I don't even think that uh, Grissom would do much because, like, there was this this other case of this model that went missing. Nick and, Nick and Sarah were taking the lead. It was a career breaking case, and he let Catherine take the lead. Well, Vega is questioning Lindsay and said that after the recital, she and Eddie went out for ice cream, and Catherine. Asked her if Eddie had any auto alcohol, but Lindsay tells her that he only ever drank water. 
Lindsay doesn't know where the woman with the pink hair came from because she fell asleep and woke up when they stopped at a building. But she doesn't know what kind of building it was. And Lindsay said that Eddie told her he had a quote-unquote mini meeting and left Lindsay in the car alone with the doors locked. Like Catherine is just pissed off at everything that is happening. So Lindsay tells Vega that the woman with the pink hair was waiting for Eddie in the parking lot outside of the building. They started to argue. And they, she heard a bang, and Eddie ran back to the car, holding his stomach. Outside of the room, Catherine got a phone call, which meant that Eddie's body was found. And then she looks over his body in the autopsy. Doc Robin is having a full day. It's literally the third body. It's just been one night. One night and the third body. So Grissom tells her that she can take time off, but she's like, oh, no, we're okay. Don't worry about it. Dude, you might be okay, but your daughter just lost her dad. A lab tech tells Sarah that the blue liquid they, that she found in the vial is GHB with full chlorine. Sarah realizes that GHB is a date rape drug, but the lab tech tells her that it is mixed with the right stimulates that creates a good party drug. So Sarah is going over the car again, and she finds a flyer on the visor. It's... And on the flyer, there is a woman with a pink hair, and her name Candace. So she pulls a CD label, Sahara Sounds. We, and we know who she, and she's played by Polly Perrette. I love her. She's from NCIS. So Sarah and Vega, they go to the music studio, and they tell the music producer that Eddie's dead, and the music producer says, oh... That's what happens when you have a high-strung singer with no manager. Candace is seen in a flashback recording a song, but she freaks out when she realizes that Eddie isn't there. And she calls Eddie, saying that she can't do what she's doing without his presence. And the producer tells Sarah and Vega that Eddie wanted to cut a demo to set a contract, get Candace on the charts, and write on her success. But... He wanted a relationship with Candace, which means that he was having sex with her. That's Eddie. What else do you expect? Yeah. The producer and the sound engineer, they are frustrated because they can't get a good take from the singer in the boots because of the jackhammer, because there's a construction on the outside. So Sarah asked them if they kept recording after Candace laughs, and they said that, yes, we did. Vega said that they need to look after, they need to look at the tapes. If your microphone can actually record everything that is happening, it's not a, it's a good microphone, but it actually means that your soundproof walls are not actually soundproofs. So they found Candace and they questioned her and she says that she hasn't seen Eddie since the night before. Sarah realizes that she has a cast on her right wrist and she says that Candace has a fracture ulna, a fracture ulna, a ulna, it's one of, your the main bones in your wrist it hurts like a bitch when you fractured and that injury is really common when an airbag is exploding right in your face and sarah says that candace is having trouble with her eyes because the airbags are also filled with cornstarch and talk which means that her eye that's why her eyes are like you know, like this. Sarah tells Candace that they know that she saw Eddie the night before and that she was driving his car. And then Candace changes her story and says that Eddie drove to the studio and says that 
drove to the studio, and he was bleeding from a gunshot wound. Then she got in the car, comforted Lindsay, and drove to the hospital. And Sarah tells Candace that there were three people in the car, not just her. And Candace pretended to be to be there for everyone else. But Sarah tells her that Lindsay was left alone in the sinking car, and that Edri's body was found 100 yards away from the car. Candace says that he tried, she tried to pull Eddie to safety, but the kid kept screaming. And Sarah's like, well, we could have called the cops on our ambulance instead of just running away. And Candace says, well, my priority was Eddie and not stupid, screaming little breasts. That's what gets Catherine to break into the room and starts to go full mama bear mode on Candace, threatening to kill her. So Sarah is able to restrain her. And pulls her into the hallway. And tells Catherine should have been told to begin with. Go be with your daughter. She needs you. And Catherine's like, well, you're not doing a good job with the case. Okay, so Archie is going over the recording from the music studio. And he tells Sarah that the files were modified. By the time, looking at the times that the files were modified, he can tell which tracks were being recorded at the time of the shootings. And he finds two tracks that were recording. They were recorded when... Eddie left Lindsay recital and the time that Lindsay called Catherine and he finds a track from a drum demo and he saw a change in the amplitude in the sound waves, which means that something happened outside that made the sound spiked. When that sound wave was isolated, they heard a gunshot followed by a motorcycle engine. And they have another witness or suspect so Vega tells Catherine that Candace made six calls in the night of the accident, five to Eddie and one to someone else. Sarah and Vega, they go to and see the person which Candace calls. His name is Zed Kinner. And when he's questioned about the phone call, Zed says that it could have been a girl he slept with, didn't sleep with, what is just a wrong number. And Vega says, well, the call lasted for four minutes, so it's someone worth talking to. And Sarah realizes that there is a motorcycle on the driveway. Vega tells Zed that he is on parole looking at two strikes. If you don't remember, in the U.S., there is the three-strike law. If someone commits a crime twice and they are still set free, but if they do it the third time, they are sent to jail for real. Zed says that he didn't know Candace. But on the phone records, they use to talk once a day, but it stops on the night of the accident. And when Vega is still talking to Zed, Sarah swabs a blue substance that from the drain in the in Zed's garage, which turns out to be GHB, which is linking him to Ed's murder. Zed tell, says that Candace called him because she needed help. And in the flashback, it shows that she bought GHB from Zed and Eddie interfered because he wanted her to be clean while recording her music. And then Candace and Eddie started to have a fight. She pulled out a gun and shot him. Zed said that he got onto his motorcycle and ran out because he didn't want it to go back to jail. But he still go back to jail because he was selling drugs. Well, in the music studio, Candace tells Sarah and, and Vega that Zed is in fact a drug dealer. 
but she used to be a client, but she's not anymore because Eddie helps her get clean. She also says that uh, she tried to call Eddie, but his phone was off because he was with Catherine and Lindsay. And she was mad in the recording book and Eddie was nowhere. And she says there was an argument and Zed pulled up and shot Eddie. And Candace says that she thought that Eddie wasn't coming to the studio, but he was just late. Catherine is disappointed at Sarah because Sarah is closing the case. And Sarah tells her that she actually has no choice because she has no murder weapon and she has two liars. And she can put Candace behind bars because of child endangerment and fleeing the scene of an accident. And Zed is behind bars because of possession of drugs and intending to sell. But Eddie is unsolved. I mean... It would go down as he said, she said. They actually have no no way to know who shot who, you know. So, what do you think happened? Do you think Candace shot him? Not on purpose. Yeah, maybe it was. Oh, I was just glad that Eddie was, was not in the picture anymore. Yeah. Because it was just annoying as it was. <laughs> well, thank you so much for listening. Thank you, everybody. Let's stick around for next week's episode. It's going to be after the show. The show. Yep. Season 4, uh, episode 8. See you guys then. Bye. I love you.